1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Life is short. It's way too short. I, was, uh, I saw a cartoon. It was a publisher and the editor is on the phone with a housefly. And the editor says, no, we can't publish your autobiography. Why? Because it's only one page long. Flies have short lives. We have even shorter lives. Not in terms of days, but in terms of our expectations, our dreams, our vision, and especially our relationships. They can grow and get better. They can improve. We can iron out the difficulties. Why? Why are our lives so short? So the death of loved ones is always a heartbreaking event. And I know many of us in this room know this pain, don't we? So what to say to someone who's grieving? What do you say? Isn't it true that sometimes our words just seem so empty? We sometimes use empty platitudes because we don't know what else to say. And sometimes I think the things we say only irritate those who are grieving. We're, we're like Job's friends. You know, you read the book of Job and here's these friends that are counseling Job and they seem to be saying, Job, if you just understood what God was doing here, then you wouldn't be grieving over the loss of all your children. What do you say to someone who's grieving? Paul faces that question in this text. The Thessalonians believed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. And they thought it was imminent, about to happen, and in fact, that because it was about to happen so closely, they would likely escape death. What a wonderful idea, right? What a wonderful notion that none of us have to go through the, the pain and the suffering that precedes death. But they were seeing something else happening. Some of their loved ones were dying. What about them? What comfort can Paul offer those who are now grieving the loss of loved ones? And, and shocked maybe, surprised that Christians are dying and the Lord has not returned yet. So let's look at this text, and I, I'll just look at four words here. Uh, grief, hope, reunion, and comfort. Grief, hope, reunion, and comfort. First, notice that grief is real. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Christians grieve when they lose one that they love. 
Christians give. I think there are some Christians who think that allowing tears to fall, showing people their heartbrokenness at the loss of loved ones, exhibits a kind of lack of faith in the promise of God that there's an afterlife. But you, you notice the Thessalonians grieved, and Paul is openly acknowledging it. When we become Christians, we don't quit being human. And grief at parting of any kind is a human trait, isn't it? Even if it's a temporary parting, there is grief in our heart. We don't like it. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. You remember that in John's Gospel, chapter 11? I think as you read the words, probably it was kind of an angry, frustrated, grieving at the reality of this awful thing called death. But he still wept, it says, even though he knew that momentarily he would be raising Lazarus from the dead. He saw the, the friends, the women and the friends of Lazarus weeping and it broke his heart. We grieve at partings even though we know they're temporary. I, I'm sure you've had that experience. I, I remember when I was a little boy, maybe second grade, and my dad dropped my older brother and me off at boarding school. And as my dad walked off, I just began to weep inconsolably. And I cried so hard that I began to retch. You know, I was just throwing up all over. Oh, my poor brother was out. Come on, get up. Come on, you'll be okay. Just a few years older than me, he had to walk me to the dorm. I'm sure it was embarrassing. I still feel pity for him, you know, older brother walking a little brother in like that. But the truth is, I was going to see my dad in a few months, but that didn't help. Parting, parting of any kind produces grief in us. We're human. But it says, for the believer, we grieve with hope, not as those who have no hope, it says in verse 13. There's something different. See, hope says there's a future. It's recognizing that this parting is temporary. There's been these forest fires in the West, you know, awful things. You see homes that are burnt down. Sometimes if you're watching the news, you see families being interviewed. and You can sort of see the tracks of tears in their soot-covered faces and the families holding each other and they're interviewing them. And you can tell their sorrow that they've lost everything and and, and yet there's a kind of a hope. They say, but you know what? We have each other. And then they say, and we can rebuild. Things are lost, but not all is lost forever. And so Christian hope coincides with grief. Christian hope doesn't eliminate grief if you've lost something or someone that you loved. But it sees that death is not an utter loss. It sees that death is not a final loss. Because there's something that lies ahead. There's a happy day that lies ahead. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. So then that brings me to the second thing, hope. We grieve with hope. But what is this hope? Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, the truth is most everyone in almost all cultures have some kind of hope in a life beyond. You look at the cultures that surrounded ancient Israel and surrounded the church in the New Testament, and you, you read about other cultures, they all knew that, at least they 
speculated. They hoped there was something beyond. There, in some cultures, they had graves. They had little slots in them so relatives could put food in. It's not that they thought that the dead would eat the food. I, I think it's a symbol of hope in the future. You know that kings and emperors were buried sometimes with their servants. Poor servants. Sometimes they were buried with terracotta soldiers, you know, to guard them, with, with boats to guide them across the final river. All these cultures had belief in some kind of future. In fact, the very word used here, for example, in verse 13 first, it says, talking about those who are asleep, or those in verse 14 who are asleep in Jesus. The idea of Death being sleep was known to all the pagan cultures. It was common in Roman and Greek culture also. It's not unique to Christians. It expresses a hope of being awakened in the future, at least a a speculation. In fact, our word cemetery comes from the Greek word sleeping place. The idea of sleep is there, isn't there? But it's a hope filled with uncertainty. We don't know. Oh, I hope this happens. I hope that happens. And the word hope means something different from them than it means in our text. There's this old song. Some of you may recognize it. But it just occurred to me that that song really captures the feeling people in our culture have when it comes to the life beyond the grave. Here's one verse. Now, troubles are many. They're as deep as a well. I can swear there ain't no heaven but I pray there ain't no hell. Swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell, and I'll never know by living, only my dying will tell. Yes, only my dying will tell. And when I die and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in this world to carry on, to carry on. I like the honesty of it, but I think many people in our culture would say, amen, that's my hymn. You know, that's about where I stand when it comes to the world to come. No way to know now. Only my dying will tell. Only when I am on the other side of the grave, only then will I know what's there, if anything. But I I hope, oh, I hope it's not judgment. I hope it's not hell. No solid hope to sustain the grieving. Only my dying will tell. But Christians have, you see, this solid hope. That's what it's talking about. In fact, it says, it's as certain as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope that we have about what happens after death is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Even so. By the way, you notice how prominent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is all through our Christian faith. And not just theologically. It's not something that we consider abstractly, but it's practical comfort. If you're worried, if you're full of fear about the future, about death, if you're overwhelmed by grief, Paul says, here's what you think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is saying about the resurrection of Jesus all through the ages, and we sing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's at the heart of our Christian faith. So our hope is not in some details of how the second coming will happen, and all the debates, all the books that are written about it, but it says that our hope is based on the certainty of the resurrection. 
It's not based on speculation about heaven and what life will be like there. It's wonderful and it's fun to try to guess what life will be like that, but it's based on the certainty of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what scripture proclaims. That's the evidence of history. That's what convinced me and that convinced you that once in all of history, death really was conquered, that Jesus rose from the dead and that changes everything. It means he's true and he's real and his claims about himself are worthy of trust. So he rose from the dead. You notice what scripture says, not like a ghost, a spirit, not in the memory of his apostles as though they remembered him and therefore he lived in some abstract way. No, the scripture says he rose bodily, physically. Read what it says. He walked with people, he talked with them, he cooked food, he ate food. They could touch him. It was a real physical resurrection. And it says, even so, with the same certainty, Christians also will rise from the dead. And as you read the rest of Scripture, you see that even so, you could say, has a different meaning also, that in the same manner, we will rise from the dead bodily, physically. We also will have a future beyond the grave. And this is the promise to all who sleep in Jesus. That means who who die trusting in him, trusting in his promises. That's the first statement. It's for those who are in Jesus. And then it says, for those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Why am I overwhelmed with grief? Scripture here is challenging us to examine our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. As we believe in that, as we're absolutely convinced of that, and what that means for us as Christians Our grief changes. We still grieve, but we grieve in hope. There's a future. There's a future. So we grieve. It's real. We grieve in hope. And then there's this grand reunion ahead. Let me read again verses 15 and on. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. This is a very brief description, isn't it? This is the word of the Lord. Paul is doing what the apostles were commissioned to do. We talked about this several weeks ago. Jesus commissioned the apostles to proclaim what he taught, to apply what he taught, to teach it in a way that people would follow and obey it. And so he's doing that. We don't know exactly where this teaching of Jesus is. Maybe it's something like Matthew 24, where Jesus does talk about the second coming. But here's the apostle explaining details that are not elsewhere. It's the bare minimum. I know Many people, and I think many of you, enjoy studying books on the end time. I have to tell you about myself that I don't have great certainty about any of those details. I don't know what will happen exactly. I don't know when it will exactly happen. And for me, I tend to just focus on the plain words in texts like this. So, very briefly, here's what verse 16, for example, says. Here's the description of what will happen. Lord descends from heaven with a shout, voice of, really it's not the archangel, as though there was a particular one. There's no article 
It's really a voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ rise. This is a description which is mentioned in other places about the coming of the Lord. The word that's used in other places is the parousia, you know, the coming of the Lord. Often it that word referred to in the secular literature, the coming of a king, a dignitary, a, a general into a city. There was a, a parade, a great throng to greet this returning dignitary, a celebration. But now it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's coming. But notice in verse 16 the loud words, the, the prominent, unmistakable coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes from heaven, it says. High in the air, there's nothing obstructing his view. He's visible to everyone. He's like a a burning sun. He's like a comet. You know, he's seen by everyone at the same time. And then he comes with a shout. I think it's maybe a shout of triumph, of victory. It could be the shout of Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, an hour is coming, it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Could be that. Or it could be the shout of this archangel, the voice of the archangel that it mentions here. Shouting, announcing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the trumpet of God. It's not a song that's being played. It's not music here that's being referred to. This is a, a loud announcement. It's a, it's a call to battle. It's the announcement of victory. Unmistakable. These words are all big, loud. Everybody will see, everybody will hear. And then here's the promise. Those who have died in Christ, that is, believers in Christ, will rise first. They'll be clothed with new bodies, just like the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And then they will wait for us. Those who remain, and it may be some of us, The Lord has not returned and we're waiting. We're wondering what's going to happen. Those who have gone on before us will be resurrected and they'll be waiting for us. And then what happens? Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I just want you to notice those two words, caught up and meet. Caught up is the word that's used in one way or the other in almost all of our English translations. When the New Testament was translated into Latin a long, long time ago, it used the word rapio, which means to be snatched away. It was used in many senses, could be snatched away in body, in spirit, in emotion, as in ecstasy. And from that Latin word, we get the word we use for this phenomena that's described in verse 17, the word rapture. So the word rapture as such doesn't occur in our English Bibles, but it's based on that Latin translation. That's the first thing. Somehow we're caught up to meet the Lord. And I say somehow because no detail is given here. And then the second word is to meet the Lord. The word here was used of the visit of an official or a dignitary or a returning general. Typically what would happen is that You'd hear about this king or this general coming from a victory and all the city would run out to meet him. And they'd have maybe banners or other things to wave and then there'd be almost like a parade that would escort this king or this general back into the city. 
a great celebration, a day of joy. The same word is used in Acts chapter 28, verse 15 by Luke. Because Luke is describing there what happens when Paul comes to Rome. Actually, we should say when Paul is brought to Rome by the Romans. But as Paul enters the city, they hear that he's coming. Here's what it says in that verse. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, Luke and Paul. And they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. Same word, to meet us. So they wanted to greet Paul as he came and Luke as he came. So they, the Christians went out, they met Paul, and then they escorted them back into the city. And maybe that's what's happening here. We're all caught up. All the Christians are caught up. Those who died, those who were alive at the coming of the Lord, we meet the Lord in the air as a joyful parade, a throng to escort the king back to the world that belongs to him, that is part of his kingdom that he has the right to rule. There's a reunion with the Lord and with those who are caught up to meet him. And lastly, there's comfort. The last verse, in, uh, last phrase rather, in verse 17 says, So we shall always be with the Lord, and then 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. On that day, what you long for will be accomplished. What you yearn for now all my grieving brothers and sisters, all of us who feel sorrow today, on that day, it'll happen. You'll be satisfied. Now the question is, what do you long for? What do you really long for? I, I think a reunion with our loved ones is the first thing that comes to mind. And verse 17 says, together with them. We shall always be with the Lord together with them. We're going to be together with those that we have missed so much. But you notice that is not the chief joy of that day. The chief joy at the end of verse 17 is so we shall always be with the Lord. I think this might be a little bit of a shock to us as Christians. The way we speak about the life to come is maybe something that we have to re-examine because the joy, the great promises that we'll be with the Lord on that day. Of course, it's hard for us, hard for someone like me to imagine anything better than seeing those that have been lost. Moms and dads, you know, children, husbands, wives. Can't imagine anything sweeter well than just hugging them again, you know, smothering them with kisses, catching up on, well, I don't know, years and years of events, all that's flooded into your heart, emptying it out before them feeling the warmth of their bodies next to you again. Yeah, they'll have bodies. That's what Scripture says. We'll all be clothed with resurrection bodies. But what do we sing about? Even today, what do we sing about? Oh, Lord, when we see you, our hearts are satisfied. We long to see you. One thing have I desired, the psalmist said, to be in the presence of the Lord, to behold his beauty. That's what we sing about when we sing in the power of the Holy Spirit, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the end of verse 17, so we shall be with the Lord. What will that be like? What will that be like? Try to imagine it. What will that be like? I, I can't imagine it. Sometimes when we're singing or sometimes when I'm reading about it in the Bible, I try to conjure up an image of what it'd be like to actually see Jesus. What will he look like? Or what will it be like 
I don't even know, to see the glory of this triune God. And every image I come up with just seems laughably silly. I know it's not that. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know it's not what's in my head right now. What will it be like? I think I'm going to be shocked. Not just surprised, but shocked. When I see the glory of the Lord, I'll be editing and rewriting a lot of the things that I thought I was sure of about what I'd be seeing. I think I'm going to be full of fear, kind of like being in an open field with a huge thundercloud over you. And I think I'll be comforted. Just waves of kindness and grace and love from the Lord coming down upon me. I can't imagine. I know you're thinking of that very popular song. I can only imagine. I think the songwriter was talking again about what I'm talking about here. The, the limits of our capacity to even imagine what heaven will be like, what it'll be like to actually see the Lord. The song, one verse says, Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? I can only imagine. But you see, that's the chief comfort for Christians. We'll see Jesus, so we will always be with the Lord. I know, I know some of us have lost ones that we love with all our heart. It's hard at this moment maybe even to imagine that there's something sweeter than being with them again. But a scripture says there is something far more wonderful that will be with the Lord. But there's more. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the verse says, verse 17, so we will be caught up together with them, together with them. Our loved ones at this unbelievable, unimaginably glorious moment, our loved ones are with us. I don't know if we're holding hands or if we're just sitting there side by side, but as we are filled with awe, as we're singing the praises of this Lord, maybe we're just joining in with this shout like a crowd at a sporting event when something amazing happens. I don't know what's happening, but our loved ones are right there with us. And there's a sweetness in that thought, isn't it? Together with them, those who we have lost, those who we've been waiting to see. But just pause a moment. I, I know that we'll be excited to see them, hug them, eyes locked one with the other. But I think that their eyes will be on the Lord. Hope you don't feel bad because they'll be looking at that glorious. But I think your eyes will also be on the Lord. We'll be together, but our focus will be on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you the story of the pastor. I heard it from him as he was sharing what happened to him when his little boy, I think maybe eight or nine years old, developed this disease that they could not treat. Oh, and they prayed for him. The church prayed. People all over the world prayed, but this little boy just slowly wasted away and died. And it shattered this pastor's faith. Couldn't pray. Certainly couldn't be ministering in the church. How could God allow this to happen? Such an awful thing. His grief was overwhelming. And slowly, very, very slowly, I, I think over months, maybe even over a few years, his faith was reborn. He, he began to read the promises in Scripture of a day that lies ahead. There is a happy day ahead. And he began to think that one day I'll have a reunion with my son again. That's the promise of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he began to pray again. He began to be filled with praise again and to worship again. And he says one day he was 
praying and worshiping and just filled with joy at the thought of reunion with his son when all of a sudden this awful thought occurred to him that his son had become an idol. What he was looking forward to was not being with the God and the Lord of heaven and earth, but what he longed for, what he yearned for was a reunion with his son. It hit him. He repented of it, he said. He realized how wrong he had been and his hope was recast. Yes, he'll be with his son. How wonderful that'll be. But both his son and he will be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his son's true hope and that's his true hope as well. We will be together with them, but we'll be together in the presence of a glorious, amazing, awe-inspiring experience, which is seeing Jesus himself. And so it says in verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you wonder what to say? You wonder what to say, especially to believers who are grieving? See, here's a command. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort is not an elimination of grief. Don't get upset if after you give comfort, after you pray, after your friend, people keep grieving. Grieving is human. It's a part of who we are. Many of us know that. Even after many years, you feel that heaviness, don't you? Even after many years, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, tears can erupt in your eyes. It happens. Comfort is not the elimination of grief, but it shows that we have hope. And hope means grief has a bottom. When we grieve, we don't fall down, 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 down emotionally. We don't go into this infinite abyss. There's a, there's a bottom. And the bottom is the knowledge, the certainty of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I miss him. I miss her with all my heart. But it's not forever. This is not an utter loss. This loss is not final. There is a life beyond. We will meet again. And when we meet, it'll be in the presence of our Lord and our Savior. So what to say? Wisely, tenderly, at the right time. Listen, Jesus has risen. Death has been conquered. We will be raised immortal. And all of us together, all brothers and sisters, all of us will be with the Lord forever. So comfort one another with these words. Amen. Isaiah said, Lord, comfort, comfort ye my people. And we pray, Lord, that these words would be comforting to many here. The grief would not overwhelm us, drown us. Even as we have broken hearts, even as tears flow, we would know that there is a future. That the future is guaranteed by the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. May his presence and his spirit be with all of us. In his name, amen.